Welcome to the Want to Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, I have a fantastic conversation with Traveling Mitch, a guy who has traveled all around the world by living all around the world. Yes, that's right. He actually settles down in a place and explores it. So we talk about places that he's lived in, like Istanbul. We even briefly talk about Nicaragua. He goes and lives in Scandinavia, like Oslo and Norway and South Korea. And I talk about all these different regions and the pros and cons of democracy, why he has tattoos, what are some of the Scandinavian stereotypes, will the two Koreas unite in the next 40 years, and how can you actually live abroad, what's his future plans, what about K-pop, have you guys heard about that, and why is South Korea the way it is? We also talk about Ataturk, the modern founder of Turkey. And what's his traveling style? How does he pull it all off? And what about relationships while living abroad? You're the first guest I've ever interviewed who's actually lived in the center of the world. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Now, this is not New York City, contrary to popular belief. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So uh, where's the real center of the world, according to those who live there? So uh, undoubtedly Istanbul, Istanbul, Turkey. Um, I thought you were going to say Nicaragua. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I spent some time there as well. Um, But um, yeah, I mean... uh, of course, we can spend that. I could spend an entire episode talking uh, talking about Istanbul, but I mean, I, I absolutely loved, I loved living there, um, and I think part of the reason I loved living there is because you you do have that that incredible history there, and and it is the center of the world in in a lot of respects. It certainly most respects I can think about. Um, whenever there's sort of uh, any global turmoil going on, Turkey's uh, in it one way or the other, um, or people are concerned about which way they're leaning. And I think that's that's fascinating. But I think um, it also, I mean, I'm not sure if you've been to Istanbul yourself, but it's it's one of those cities that it's got an, it's this illustrious history. And yet the, the people, I, at least I've found, maintain a certain sense of humility. Um, you know, I, I didn't, I mean, uh, not to call any cities out, but, you know, I, I felt, I did, you know, I have felt uh, in cities perhaps like Paris, you know, you kind of felt like, uh, or, or New York, for example, like you kind of feel like... Or Rome. Eh, yeah, sure, exactly. These are places where, you know, the, the, there's a certain attitude there, like, yeah, welcome to the center of the world, you know, and then you go to the actual center of the world and the people there are kind of just like, welcome to Istanbul, you know, I <laughs> hope you like it. <laughs> right, and and I've often pointed out that people like in Athens or in Rome, these great centers of empires that fell... A lot of the people do have a bit of swagger. And I'm like, well, as Obama once said, you didn't build that. <laughs> um, and, and, and I feel like telling that to them, but it's, it's not. I mean, I remember that even Mark Twain, he mm-hmm. said that the, the modern Greeks, after he went to Greece and he was completely disappointed that people weren't walking around in togas and acting all regal. He said that, uh, that they're like a libel to the ancient Greeks. In other words, they're kind of like they're, they're an insult to the ancient Greek tradition he was so disappointed mark twain was just furious after having gone to greece expecting such high expectations he's like this is it this is what the people are (laughs) the descendant the descendants of these amazing tribe that just made this incredible civilization this is it anyway so um yeah so getting back to turkey so yeah in many ways it is it was where east and west met right there at the bosphorus river that's kind of where Asia becomes Europe and vice versa. And yet, I think about 70% of 
Istanbul is on the European side. Am I correct about that? Yeah, so it's it really just kind of depends on um, on where you draw the borders because Istanbul is 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 one of those cities where, I mean, I, I would say uh, for 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 anybody listening from a, from a tourist perspective, I think that's pretty fair to say. I mean, if you're going to be talking about the highlights of the city, um, you know, Galata and Beylu and Jahangir and all these modern areas on on. Um, across from Sultanahmet, which is Sultanahmet's the, the old town and where you'll find the Blue Mosque and the Hagia Sophia and the Basilica Cistern and Topkapa Palace and all of those sorts of places. And all of that's on the European side. Um, but you'll find that, you know, people who have lived there for quite some time are probably seeking refuge in Kadukoy, uh, probably the most famous um, area on the Asian side, which is known for being hyper liberal, um, and and what I mean by hyper liberal is that you know when there's um, when there's somebody in power who might be uh, exercising that a little bit too much. Um, I think a lot of people are taking their lead from the way Katakoy is reacting to that, um, and it's it's a really fascinating sort of sort of uh, neighborhood. But I think yeah, generally speaking, you can say that certainly the more famous portions, um, at least at, at this point, are are on the European side. Um, but it's I mean it's I certainly like it never it never got old to me to hop a ferry across to Asia, um, you know, and be back for dinner time in Europe. <laughs> so right. Um, what about in Kepakoi? Uh, would is that where they might have? protests uh demanding for let's say gay rights and things like that uh would you find that there or is it still too conservative in turkey to even think about that yes and no i, I think uh, most of the you know quote-unquote formal protesting that happened would would probably start around taksim square and go down istiklal and if you've been to istanbul before istanbul before istiklal jadesi or istanbul street uh Istik, sorry istiklal well, Jadesi or Istiklal Street is the kind of the main throughway that snakes from Taksim Square down to Shishane, which is where um, the Galata Tower is. And a lot of protests would literally start and go, you know, from the top, from Taksim Square all the way down um, down the street. And and at its height, uh, I think something like two or three million people were walking down that street per day. So it's it a statement to sort of walk down that street in a group. Um, when I arrived in Istanbul in 2014. There, I believe there was a, you know, a relatively successful, you could say, LGBTQ um, walk that I think was, you know, reasonably supported. Um, I think, uh, you know, uh, leadership became more conservative while I was there. And I think attitude shifted a little bit. Um, and uh, and as a result, I, I think there was another parade of sorts in 2015 or 2016, but but. Uh, by this, it was eventually. I think there was it was broken up with tear gas, um, and that's not to paint, you know, Istanbul. Like I think that I think it's important to draw a distinction between. I think Istanbul is a pretty. I felt was a pretty liberal and open minded city, um, but uh, the government uh, while I was living there was was not quite as open minded. We'll say. I see, and that has changed under the new regime that is kind of still in power in 2020. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's like the central tension of Istanbul or Turkey for for me at least was the the you know the the most revered figure there, Gandhi, if you will, um, is a Mehmet Kemal Atatürk, and, and Atatürk is uh, 
you know, someone worth revering. I think in a lot of ways he secularized the nation. He brought science and culture to the forefront. Um, I think. But hold on. Uh, now, with Attic Turk, I thought that one of the things that might be interesting to find out, and I did go to Istanbul. I, I've been to one or two other places in Turkey, but so I don't. But I don't consider myself at all an expert. So I didn't have the chance to ask this question. I want to ask you is if you were to survey the people and maybe even read if such surveys exist about people's opinion about Ataturk, who lived about 100 years ago, if I remember correctly, or was in power in 100 years ago. What's the opinion nowadays? Because like as a side issue, we in the West kind of revere, if you will, or admire in many ways, Gorbachev of the Soviet Union. For he brought Glasnost and Perestroika, and he revolutionized the and quote unquote modernized the Soviet Union. But if you ask Russians, only one percent approve of Gorbachev, which is totally different. So I'm just curious if we're doing the same thing with Ataturk. Ataturk is, is still hugely revered um, in Turkey and Istanbul. You know, um, to, it's it's yeah, it's, it's an intense reverence, and and I, like to the point where like you know, I was teaching there. Now I'm writing and doing uh, doing a, you know. A million different things full time. But um, at the time I was teaching in Istanbul and like if you were going to have like a children's day, for example, um, you know, you would not do that without probably songs, you know, related to Ataturk and with large banners with Ataturk. Like you wouldn't, have, you know, I, but that's changing. Um, I mean, it, I, it's changing in the sense that the the person who's in power now, Erdogan, is, is looking to uh, in, in in my humble opinion, looking to become the new idol. Um, and I think he's looking to shift eyes. But that's not necessarily going over well. That's the central tension in, in Turkey and Istanbul is this love and reverence of Ataturk. And for people who don't know, Ataturk was basically responsible. He was um, he was in he was in the Turkish army, I think infantry in World War One, I, I think. And um, he, I think when, after World War One, when people were sort of, coming in to 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 take take turkey apart as spoils of war in some sense um he's sort of led a resistance against that and kind of kept uh turkey's independence and then i think he if i remember correctly governed from the mid or late 20s until the late 1950s um but but radically changed the nation so that's you know that's he is the sole reason if people think about like if people are worried about going to the middle east or whatever but they're somehow comfortable about going to istanbul that's probably because of the measures that Ataturk put in place to secularize the nation um and so this is the tension that this this modern nation of Turkey is built on secular principles of Ataturk. Ataturk literally meaning the father of Turkey, and uh, and Erdogan, Erdogan the, current, the current leader is uh, is looking to go back to Islam, and um, and that's causing some intense uh, tension in the nation. And I think that I, I the last time I was in Istanbul was in July. Um, I still have friends who live there now. And, and as far as I can understand, there's still, still, there's still that, that tension there. Um, yeah. It, okay. it's a minor, minor correction, correction for those who are listening. Uh, Chris, is that I agree with everything you said about him. The only issue is that I'm 99% sure that he died before world war two broke out. And so oh, is it he, didn't into, he didn't go into the fifties. Yeah, thirty-eight, not fifty-eight. Okay, because I know, so. I know. There's, you said in the fifties. Yeah. Um... But anyway, but but the, the, what I'm still curious about is that why? The, oh, you're right. Sorry, apologies, apologies. Nineteen thirty-eight, and the reason I remember the, the eight they usually put on its side for infinity. 
Sorry, apologies. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, no worries. No worries. No, but everything else you, you said was uh, was accurate. And I, But I'm still curious because I know that Turkey has, like any country, has a conservative population in certain parts. Maybe it's 1% of the population. Maybe it's 20%. I don't know. But there's a certain segment of, of Turks who are conservative to the point of being angry, I imagine, that Ataturk took away the... Arabic alphabet and converted into a Latin based or whatever you want to call it, English based alphabet, the way, the same characters that we use in the Roman Roman alphabet. And probably say, you took us away from Islam. You took us away from our quote unquote traditions that we inherited from the the great Ottoman Empire and from and all these other things. And you took us you know, so I imagine some people must be poo pooing that, no? Or yeah, was it yeah. like less than one percent? No, no, that's that's exactly right. Um, and I think it's you know, it's not uh, it's not a dissimilar tension that you see in the US, uh, where people are um, not upset to have a leader um, you know, in power who is who is propping up uh, religious values again um, and all in and Potentially, all that comes with that, um, and I think in Turkey it's more you know pronounced in the sense that I think Istanbul is quite liberal. Um, you have some other cities like Izmir and things like that which are very liberal, but um, the fur- I think the further east you get from Istanbul, it- it's still very very conservative. Um, Gaziantep and Van and a few other spots are extremely conservative, um, and that's where you know has a large base of support because it really is uh, you know despite despite the fact that uh, modern Turkey is based on secular values. Yeah, you ha- you have all these people who are trying to go back to, uh, I mean, um, in t- they're trying to go back to that Ottoman, uh, that period, that, that, that amazing golden hue, you know, that they, they, that they believe existed back right. then. And I think that's a huge tension. Um, and I think even in Istanbul, I mean, it's 90, 90, 99% of the people are, practice islam um you know but at the same time there's a certain like the bars are the bars the mehanes and all those places are packed so there's got to be something that gives there but i think um yeah it's 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 certainly i mean it's certainly present uh you're 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 right on the money there that's that's probably the central tension is there's still a hypo there's the, the thing about um turkey i would say is that the the people there and i have a lot i have a lot of respect for it have tremendous conviction in their beliefs um and I think you have two sides, which are, you know, it's not, again, not totally dissimilar to, to the U.S. You have some people who are hyper-liberal and believe that there's a certain way to do things, or and there's a then there's the, the opposite, which are conservative and religious and so forth. And that's a, that's a tension that we're seeing um, pop up across the world, obviously, right? But, uh, but I think it's probably more pronounced, um, at least in my opinion, in, 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 in Turkey. Or one thing, Chris, while you were talking, I just uh, went up on Wikipedia and just checked uh, the date on his death. And I see where you got the 1957, maybe because he died at the age of 57. Gotcha. Maybe that's when you you probably thought of 57. That's my guess. Um, but he, yeah, so he was relatively young, fifty-seven. He did a whole lot at, in a young term. I would I would disagree, by the way, um, when you said that. I think Donald Trump. I think you were alluding to Donald Trump when you're saying that he's bringing back religious stuff because I don't think of Donald Trump as a religious leader or maybe the vice president. He's much more religious than Donald Trump, but Donald Trump is. I guess. I guess what I mean is like sort of bringing back that, uh, like hearkening back to um, a, a golden age or, or sort of or or um, propping up sort of conservatism 
in and of itself, sort of like an all that goes along with it. So when I think of, you know, potentially a conservative or Republicans, it's like, you know, uh, we're bringing back hard won industry, religion, so on and so forth. Um, and, and sort of at the expense of, I, I mean, I, I guess I, I, yeah, I see what I see we're going, but, um, I just, I wouldn't, I just don't think that Donald Trump is a conservative. I mean, the guy was a Democrat for a long time. He's just, to me, not a bastion of conservative. He's not, we're going he's not a pious, here, yeah, pious. He, he, he's just, he's a demagogue. He's an, uh, he's a guy who wants to become like the center of attention, kind of like Erdogan yes. was the center, you know, in that sense, I agree. Um, but I wouldn't say I don't look at him as like a, a bastion of conservative. I mean, he's just a bastion of himself. Of fair enough. Donald Trump. Yeah, fair enough. And, you know, whatever that may stand for, he'll he'll switch issues. He's, he's malleable. Not an ideologue. Yeah. Yeah. He's as long as he's number one, then that's everything is great. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> um, fair enough. If, if 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 all of a sudden the whole nation, I don't know, wanted to be, uh, you know, on a certain issue, he'll. And, you know, if he decides to go with that way, he'll go with that. He's not a he won't stick to his his. Uh, but anyway, we're we're going off topic here. Let's get back on the uh, on the main topic at hand, which is your travel style, which I find so interesting because I would I guess I would look at people as three different categories as as far as bloggers and travel bloggers and that kind of stuff. One is I would say maybe about 70 percent or 80 percent. The majority are people who kind of more or less bop around somewhat randomly and chaotically all over the planet. One day they're in Istanbul, the next day they're in, I don't know, some other country, and, and they're just constantly moving, and that's fine. Uh, my style, I tend to pick a region, and then I just explore that region. Pretty, It's a pretty big region, usually a continent, uh, and then I just go for that for a while, or, or a subcontinent, if you will. And then there's your style, which is... You pick a region to live there. You actually move your ass over there and you live there. And then you explore the nearby region around it. So tell us about the pros and cons. You probably put a lot of thought into this about doing it your way. What do you think? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, as you said, I mean, there are a lot of pros and cons to to all um, all of those different approaches and i think you know obviously with the with the quick approach where you're tackling you know a, a bazillion countries in a, in a short period of time um the the benefit there obviously is that you're going to be seeing a lot um but you know you could put forth the argument that you also saw nothing <laughs> if you you know if you're going at such a uh, a reckless pace uh, that you can't really take anything in i think the you know the the regional approach i have done that as well um like like you have although i mean i've 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 checked out your content and i i i even listened to your interview recently on the zero to travel podcast and i know you're like when you're talking about taking a region and doing it in depth you're really you really mean that <laughs> um but for me i mean what always made sense to me was to try uh, I, what I like about going to a place and moving there and then traveling around there is that I I don't just travel with the the Canadian perspective. Um, you know, being born from Toronto, I don't just travel with the the travel writer's perspective. I don't just travel with. I'm I'm also kind of carrying with me the perspective of of the nation around me. So I, I kind of felt like when I was living and studying in Oslo, you know, when I was going to Sweden, I had a better idea of not only Sweden itself, but how does Sweden relate to Norway. And then once I understood Norway and Sweden and how they related to each other, I could go to Denmark. And then once I understood Scandinavia, you know, I kind of had a, a number of seats with which to disseminate the experiences. And I also feel like 
personally that that um, there's there's value in in trying to base yourself somewhere and try to understand just gobble up all of the the authors that you can all of the books that you can to try and understand the language you know I have tattoos in multiple languages on me just because I've been impacted I felt by the places I, I I've lived and I and I care, try to carry those with me um, and I think you know if I'm talking about like a the, the central reason why I wanted to to base myself somewhere is because I think at least for me, it's all of those reasons I talked about before, and also because I believe firmly that it's. I like to go go away, experience something fully, and then bring that back with me. Bring those memories back with me, sort of in in my preferred luggage, and and take them apart. Uh, back when I'm back in Oslo, or back in Seoul, or back in Istanbul, and then you know, once I like catch my breath, then I go back out again, and I think it allows me to. It allows me to get a certain depth to to, to travel, um, and also like I think there's something fascinating. I mean, I'm sure you can resonate with this, but I think I think the concept, you know, I don't think home is a location. I think it's a it's a concept, and and so I think you can create home anywhere. So you know, I fe- I felt just as at home in Seoul and Istanbul and Oslo and those places as I did back in Toronto. Um, it's just that my home was relative. Right now, what about? your relationships that you have along the way because those who are kind of like the fly-by-night travelers the guys who are just constantly moving all they can really have is just flings effectively unless of course they're traveling with their travel partner but they can just have flings with you you're kind of like at this kind of annoying uh situation because you're kind of there you're there in nicaragua in a village you're kind of there for whatever months or maybe a year or two but you're not there permanently or at least well and so that does that make forming relationships i'm not talking about just romantic relationships although that's the main thrust uh but also just general relationships uh just because you kind of like form this bond and all of a sudden after two years of oslo or two years of korea you all of a sudden say gotta go i luckily met my partner my now wife back in 2010 so she wasn't she hasn't been with me in all of the places i've been but uh like she brie wasn't with me in nicaragua she wasn't with me in oslo but brie was living with me in uh in korea and in istanbul um and so that that wasn't uh that wasn't so bad there but as far as like the broader question um and and you know how do you create relationships and and sustain those. I mean, I think it's difficult because it's one of those things where you're spending enough time in a place that you're going to be sad leave it like you're going to kind of have a, you're going to your your goings your comings in all directions are going to be imbued with sadness you know you're you leave Istanbul to go back to Toronto you're going to be it's a strange mixed feeling you're going to be sad to leave everyone in Istanbul but you're going to be happy to see everyone in Toronto um, and I think the only way that I've been able to sort of accept that is by understanding that I don't think my journey is really ever over and you know I go back to or we go back to Istanbul with with a with a certain sense of, of regularity, and it's like amazing. It's like we, before we know it, we're we're back at a table in an alley, you know, in an alley off of a main street. We're getting we got food rolling and raka rolling, which is a which is a anise flavored uh, alcohol there. And and I feel like I I kind of I love that um, I've I've had relationships that have had enough depth that I can go back to a place and kind of almost pick up where we left off. Um, but um, it was harder in some places than others. When I was younger, for sure, uh, when I was living in Oslo, I was living in the old Olympic villages there with 10,000 other international students. So I was 20 years old. And at that point, I mean, you can imagine I was going to every kitchen party there was um, in, in, 
in Oslo, um, the bars are so expensive there that uh, there's a whole culture around kitchen parties or pre-partying and after-partying. So you you would go for uh, you you go to someone's place and have a vorspiel, like which is drinking and having a good time before you go to the bar because you can't really afford that much at the bar. Go to the bar and then you have a narspiel, an after-party. And at that point, like I was pretty sad to be leaving Oslo because I met I felt like I met so many people there and at that point I kind of thought my journey was coming to I kind of thought to myself at that age that you do these fun things when you're young and then you uh you hang up your skates you know you you say goodbye to that and you go and live a boring life because that's what you're supposed to do so at that point I was really sad because it wasn't just the people I was leaving behind but I, I thought when am I ever gonna be able to do this again um and I think uh you know in Korea specifically um that was difficult because it was the first even more so than Oslo I'm not sure why I just fell in love with that culture I was I think probably because I was writing about it more fervently and I was trying to go more in depth with it um so the long and the short of it is it's it's you know with like all relationships it's uh, all kinds of complicated but I think I'm now happy that uh there's a number of places on the globe that still feel like home it's just a matter of acclimatizing to the uh to the hour change and I'm off to the races <laughs> Yeah, that's true. By the way, speaking about uh, your time in Oslo, I just was curious because I had a little bit of sense, having spent uh, several weeks in Finland, that Finland kind of feels like the young little kind of ostracized brother out there in the corner, kind of next to Russia versus the Swedes or like the big ass, badass guys who used to rule half the known world and and still have a bit of swagger and cockiness to them. But I don't really have, and these are stereotypes, of course, but I don't really have one for Norway. Like, how does, I mean, I know they have a lot of petroleum, but other than that, I, I just don't have this image of them. How do you guys, if you stack those countries next to each other, where does Norway fall in? And is, and is my stereotype even fair, the ones that I talked about with Sweden and Finland? Maybe I'm completely off base. No, I think you're actually pretty well right on the money it's it's um and i actually haven't had anybody ask me that before i this is something i thought about a lot because i traveled a lot in scandinavia and then i as part of my requirements at the university of oslo i had to take a norwegian language class and a norwegian history class so i was learning constantly i was getting context left right and center um in a kind of in a formal way um it, it's fascinating. I think so for sure. Um, Sweden and Stockholm. I think Stockholm's literal slogan is the capital of Scandinavia. Um, <laughs> so, so like they they are not mincing words. Um, they certainly have the um, the historical empire to to back that up. The Danes are probably in second in the pecking order. I think in that regard. And by the way, and and by the way, one thing a Finn will constantly remind people is that they are not part of scandinavia they are part of northern northern europe or the nordic they'll they'll fall into that label nordic label but not scandinavia yeah and the, the, so and i think that's partially because they're not interested in being the you know the fourth in line there um and well i mean or fifth really if you count uh iceland but uh so the so De Denmark, I think, is this uh, basically um, historically speaking, Norway was just sort of traded back and forth as a spoil of war between Denmark and Sweden for, you know, I want to say from like anywhere from the 14th century to the 19th century, like it was really just an additional like, oh, you lost the war, we'll throw in Norway, um, and really Norway. Um, it really doesn't come until it's. I don't even think they got independence until the early twentieth century, and 
and they everything changes when they strike oil. Um, and again, living in Oslo was really fascinating for me because you have a country that's now unimaginably wealthy, but uh, they they're a very reserved and and humility permeates everything about that nation and those and the people. So you have. So I think at this point, I'm not sure how, how much you know about it, but I, but I think they have a trillion dollar rainy day fund right now. Like literally they have so much money that they can't put it back into the country because it would, yes. it would you know, destroy the currency or, or, or screw up the, the whole global um, you know, financial dist- uh, institutions or, or what have you. And, uh, and so, so you have this contrast where Norway – um, I think they have a certain sense of pride in, 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 and certainly they have the, you know, great, they have good, good universities now. They have um, good schools, good public health, you know, public health care and so on and so forth. But you have this, this nation that historically speaking has been the runt of the region and, and then is unimaginably rich now. And I think they're currently trying to figure out what it looks like to spread their wings. Um, in, in my, just from my experience there, I felt like Norway um, figured out that the best way they could sort of contribute on a global stage was to be, you know, to, to house NATO there, to, to be the giver of the Nobel Prize and so on and so forth, and just sort of be this quiet uh, intermediary um, in a sense, but but it's it's an interesting place. I mean, I'm not sure how much time you spend in Oslo or Norway, but it doesn't, you know, it it feels like a very strange mixture of a country that's had a had a not not a straight you know not a straight line necessarily for their history, but is doing just fine now and is trying to figure out whether they should walk with a swagger or a limp or something in between. In some ways, you know, I really don't like democracy. I kind of agree that it's it's one of the it's a terrible system, but Compared to all the others, it's 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 about as good as we're going to get in so many respects. So we kind of kind of have to stick with it because I always think that one of the big weaknesses of democracy is the fact that the future generations don't have a vote. You don't even get to vote until you're 18. But let alone talk about people who are going to be born in the 22nd century. Imagine if people born in the 23rd century could actually vote for policies and leaders of today. They they would support certain policies that are radically different than we actually have because the people who vote for day just vote for themselves even though they say it's for the children it's for the children <laughs> bullshit that nobody gives a fuck about their children or even their grandchildren they just want to have a good life right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and fuck the world in the future <laughs> so um and so my my point is is that you norway out of all these places actually has an incredible ability to look in the future. As you mentioned, they have the biggest, the world's biggest, certainly on a per capita basis, um, slush fund or whatever you want to call it, rainy day fund. I think it, like, it could be in the trillions. I, I don't know if it hit the trillion. As far as I understand it, it is, it is, it is over a trillion dollars now. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So there's, that's one piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence is they have the global seed vault in Svalbard, which is mm-hmm. their Northern Island there. I mean, think about that. Like, Hey, we're going to put a seed seed vault, take all the plant seeds of the world and store them for future generations in case we decide to like uh, lose a bunch of species, plant species. We're going to have them here for the future. I mean, that's just another sign to like have all this petroleum in their uh, ground and off their coasts and not to suck it up and use it and to tax themselves. They're 
their their petrol uh, their, sorry their uh, petrol prices are about twice to fill up your tank in, of with uh, with petroleum with gasoline is about twice the price as it is in the United States, even though they've they're swimming in the stuff. Yeah, and because they they purposefully tax themselves to discourage the use of it and to think about global warming and to have a tax on carbon, you know, just, it's incredible to me. I really admire the Norwegians, but I know very little about their kind of their character, but they've demonstrated that of having an incredible foresight, which we could all use. Very forward thinking. Um, I really appreciated that. I think you're absolutely right. When you talk about sort of this fabulous, uh, I think the best way to describe it, they're just extraordinarily uh, reasonable and logical um, about, you know, I think we've, we've built up a whole se- a whole slew of politics around environmentalism and such. And, and I think it's relatively straightforward for them. And so, well, you know, where else are we going to live? Um, and and I, was, I was sort of blown away by that simplicity because everything, as you know, in North America in particular, but, you know, everything's a debate. And, and there was nobody seemed to be on the other side of that coin. I, I personally have a theory that it starts in, in kindergarten in Norway, I, uh, as far as far as I understand it, at least if it's still taking place now, half the day in kindergarten, regardless of weather, um, had to take what took place out, outdoors. So I felt like everyone had a really deep connection with nature, and and there's the old expression, which as far as I'm told, hails from Norway, that there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. And uh, I thought that was really poignant. You know, I remember the first time I went hiking, um, I went with a few friends, and we. Uh, that you can buy those like plastic bottles of beer, and I was like, "Well, if you're bringing beer, how are you gonna, how are you gonna get water when we're hiking?" And they're like, kind of like laughed, and and they, they we we literally finished our beer walking to the hike, and then once you finish the beer, you wash it out in the running stream, and you fill it up with the running stream, and drank water. You drank literally the water running out of the stream, and we're and we're fine. Um, and I just thought, well, this is incredible. And I'm not sure if that's still the case or if that's even something I should be publicly <laughs> saying. But I, but I do know that, um, you know, I, I guess the biggest question is like, uh, you know, should we be so surprised? Like, it, it's a, it's probably more appalling that I'm shocked that I can drink out of streams than the than the fact that I did. You know, um, right? But uh, but it was fascinating for me. I mean, and and I guess you know to to draw sort of a, a full circle around that when you talk to me about what you know why do I go to a place and live there and then travel around from there it's because I'm I'm I yearn for this sort of depth you know I yearn to talk to not five people but 500 people you know and I want to be able to speak with some confidence about you know what's what what the general psyche is and and how people are feeling and I feel like ultimately I came, you know, come from Toronto. Toronto, I think, is statistically the most multicultural city on the planet. So I already had this, uh, what I felt was this, like, beautiful sort of fractured understanding of a whole bunch of different cultures and what that meant. And, and I, you know, and, and you know, half the time I spent my English literature degree, we talked about, you know, we use Canadian literature to talk about what the heck is a Canadian anyways. Um, and I think so. I'm, I'm always just, like, fascinated by by sinking my teeth into really diving into another culture, especially cultures like, you know, Korea and Turkey, for example, are like really strong, powerful cultures that seem to have a great sense of identity. And I come from a place that not only doesn't have identity, but our identity is our lack of identity. You know, that's really, in a way, Toronto and Canada is, we, we literally, we, we, I, I know for a fact, you know, we're, we're, we're looking around and saying, well, there's a melting pot, and there's a melting pot, and we're happy being a cultural mosaic. And I think that's, 
probably as close as you'll get to the Canadian ethos. Um, and that's, that's where I'm fascinated by. I want counterpoints to all the points that I grew up with and thought I understood. And I think probably to draw an even broader, you know, sense of understanding there, like that, that's ultimately why we travel, isn't it? Right. To, to, to challenge whatever convictions we thought we had and, and, and let those be burst apart. <laughs> Either that or to go travel to kill people. Yeah! Right. <laughs> go to a far-off land to have start a war. <laughs> oh, gosh. I didn't expect that. I, I both I, I love you for that. <laughs> I, just, I, I went on this long diatribe, and then I was like, oh, I just go and kill people. Oh, fantastic. I'm happy you went there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I remember reading something about, like, join the army where you can go to exotic places, see new languages, eat new food, and kill people. <laughs> something like Hurrah. that. Hurrah. can't remember. <laughs> exactly. Hurrah. <laughs> um, speaking about faraway places and, and, and future-minded places like Norway, there's also another country that I admire greatly is, and, and you also lived there, was Seoul in South Korea. Not the country Seoul, but South Korea. Because here is, once again, there was 1955, they had the same GDP per capita as Ghana. And Ghanaians, where I, where I spent some time in, they kind of remind me of this. They're like, we were at the same level in 1955, at the same GDP per capita as South Korea. Now look at them now and look at us now. And I think they've grown, I think, 19 times more than than uh, the other one. So my question is, is did you get a sense of the of is were you living in the future by living in, in Seoul? Yes, in a word. Um, yeah, I absolutely felt that way. I mean, I think uh, I both Bree and I arrived there in 2011 and were blown away. Um, you know, Seoul for people who haven't been when we arrived, there were. 16 subway lines in the city of Seoul connected to three provinces and Toronto has two like up you know absurdly measly subway lines that are laughable you know when you get to a place like Seoul I think you just look at um and also not, not to mention everybody at that time we arrived and everyone were on their smartphones that were enormous. And they, of course, they managed to somehow function in the deepest depths of the underground. Um, so we arrived there and, we're, and I felt like we, yeah, we, we just got a vision of the, the future from a technology and efficiency standpoint. Um, Seoul works. It works well. Um, and I can speak with some confidence about the fact that um, Seoul and Istanbul have a reasonably similar population. Um if you're including undocumented people for sure in Istanbul um and uh and 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 Istanbul works in in a in a in a beautiful chaos sort of way but Seoul works you know Seoul works on time and and um you can I mean you can I'm not sure if you've been it sounds like you have been to Seoul um but uh yeah. but uh a couple of times yes uh, so you you'll know that like how brilliant is it that you can you don't just meet at a subway station you meet at a particular exit you say like I'll meet you uh at uh you know Gyeongbokgung exit 7 you know and it's like every single thing is meticulously thought of so you're not just saying like I'll meet you at like in, in Toronto I'm like I'll meet you near the station and then like they message me when we get above ground but there it's like there's just not a lot of room for error, um, and they're just a. But but I, there's a there's a cost of that efficiency too. I think um, I think they're you know when you're talking about that that explosion of uh, 
it was a 10-year period. I think it was an unprecedented 10-year period of growth, right? Historically, I don't think any country has grown as fast in 10 years, if I'm not. Oh, yeah. I was talking more about 50. I was talking since 1950. And so I think they win the award for that for sure. Yeah. I don't know about the last 10 years. No, not, yeah. not, not the last 10 years. The 10 years after the war, like when they industrialized or to, when they modernized after the war, I think that was, there was no 10-year period where a country grew, yeah. grew faster. And yeah, probably. Yeah, it makes sense. Because, of course, part of it is that they're starting at the low base. But still, I mean, it, it's it, it's remarkable. They could have they could have copied Ghana, but they didn't. Right. Yeah, right, right. And, 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 and I think so for, for me, it's interesting. I, again, I kind of always am trying to think about, well, how did that happen? Well, the resolve of the Korean people is, is incredible. Um, they're there's the sheer force of will. I mean, the, the determination of the of the people there. It's remarkable. I mean, the Korean War was horrific. Um, I mean, I think people would know it if they knew about the Korean War. I mean, it was the country was rubble, you know. And to to turn that around and build, our, you know, one of the most technologically advanced societies ever ever is is, is nothing short of remarkable. However, it comes at a cost, right? Um, I think the um, you know nowadays I think suicide rate is if not the top, then the second highest in the planet is in Korea. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's difficult because I think they're, they're built on the back of a, of sort of the idea of resilience and industry. And, and, uh, and as, as a result, I mean, there's not, there's people who are like desperate overwork. Um, and, uh, and, and there's a sort of a shame culture where it, um, and then, you know, I don't want to speak too, too generally about, about um, such a sensitive issue, but I think that w- one way or another, people are choosing um, suicide uh, over over the shame of not living up to a specific expectation. Um, and I think you know, I, I taught there for for I was teaching in a hogwan in a private school for a period of time, and uh, I had kids who had all sorts of abilities, just incredible artists, incredible, just incredible everything. They all had and. Uh, and when I was teaching in Korea more than any other place that, I, that I've spent significant time, I found most of the kids, regardless of their aptitude, uh, were just said, you know, I, I want to be a CEO. I want to be a businessman. I want to be, you know, I rarely had a kid who said, I want to be an artist or, or whatever. I want to be anything but businessman or CEO. Um, so, you know, that's something to think about. But that's, that's a... Well, somebody's got to say that they want to be an artist because South Korea has produced some of the biggest mega star pop stars mm-hmm. ever. Yeah, K-pop. I mean, yeah, but that, but even that, the K, <laughs> even the K-pop thing is like it's heavily regimented. Like, I, as far as I understand, these people are like are sort of uh, groomed and then and they're brought to K-pop camp and then uh, and then like they're molded into stars and then promoted as such. Um, and it's it's intense because anyone will know who watches K-pop like those videos and stuff like the choreography the the everything I mean this is that's a full time that's a full time job being a K-pop star, um, but I think it's yeah I don't know I mean yeah it's I get for sure that's art and there's also I mean if you go to Seoul too there's incredible street art there's incredible there's a, there's an artistic vibe but I guess the thing is at least at the age that I was teaching um, you know most of the younger kids. I mean, I, all I can say is that when I've taught, look, if I taught a group of younger kids in Nicaragua and I asked, what do you want to be? There'd be such a wide variety of, of what people were interested in or were hoping to be in Canada for that matter as well. But in, in Korea, it was a pretty standard answer. Um, and, and I can't imagine that many seven-year-old kids are like, you know what? I can't wait to be a businessman. Um, right. But but who who knows? I mean, it's all that's just all that's just my sort of conjecture on that. But it's but I mean, whatever, like, you know, it's it's 
it is a oh and i should say just about you know the initial question about the future and whether it's like, like we went to i went to my first 4x or 4d movie in korea in 2011 where like your seats are your seats are moving i don't know if you've done this before your seats are moving there's um little things that come under your seat and hit your ankles during intense yeah, moments yeah. like and they spray water on yes. you and spray air on you yeah it's pretty amazing yeah, yeah. so like for all that stuff was in place when i arrived there I get that feeling when I go through a car wash, but I leave my windows down. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but I mean, like one way or the other, I mean... It's a lot cheaper, by the way. <laughs> well, I'm just going to do that from now on. I'm going to put a movie on on my smartphone and just put it up exactly. on the dashboard, and then we'll just roll through the... And then to go through the convertible, and you leave the convertible window down. <laughs> Beautiful. But, but I mean, you'll, you'll... And do that in the winter in Canada. How about that? <laughs> I would not recommend that, uh, of all the things. Uh but uh, yeah, anyways, I mean, uh, Korea is an incredible place, though. I mean, I still, I still have such a strong love for Korean food and and, and Korean culture. I think it's. A but tell me place. about this. I mean, because Canada, I mean, Korea doesn't have, as far as I can tell, a great buddy buddy friendship with Japan, and yet some of the things are so similar. They were both devastated by a war and rebuilt like crazy. Super diligent, organized, hardworking society. And they also have this death uh, in Japan. I know they have a term for being worked to death. In other words, suicide due to work. So again, that's another similar culture. And yet they don't like each other. And I can't help but think about Canada and the United States where we also have very similar cultures. But as far as I can tell, I don't think the Canadians hate Americans. You know, and But I think that, that Koreans and Jap- Japanese have a far more deep rivalry that than Canada has with the United States. Yeah, I think that's for sure fair to say. Um, I would say that, you know, Canadians and, and Americans, we, we like to joke around and so on and so forth. But, I, you know, I, I, I can't say that I've ever been at a hostel and said, oh, there's an American over there. You know what I mean? I'd be more likely like, hey, you want to get a beer? Um, right. No, I think, I think, I think. It also, by the way, I think another issue about it is like I, I was born and raised in San Francisco. Mm. And San Francisco always thinks it has this kind of big rivalry with Los Angeles. And when people go down and actually live in Los Angeles, they actually say, you know what? Actually, people in L.A. don't even think about San Francisco. <laughs> there you go. So, a, so I think it's like that. Canada thinks there's a big rivalry maybe between Canada and the United States doesn't even think about, oh, yeah, that neighbor up there. Yeah, they, they play good ice hockey. That's right. <laughs> I, think, I think it's the same thing with uh, Aussies and, and Kiwis. But I think... You know, right, but, exactly. But you know what? I think, I think... Or Ukrainians and Russians. Right, right. Well, yeah, and I think it's, all, I think it's ultimately the, the whole, the old adage of the, the you know, the... The, the elephant and the mouse, right? I mean, um, the mouse spends a lot of time tracking in and out around the 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 elephant and, and spending a lot of time in the shadow. But I think I think ultimately, probably in the case of of uh, Canada and New Zealand and and uh, some of those other nations which are beside behemoths, I think you know that's not that uh, it's not that any person in Canada is is aching to be American or wants to be American, but it's just hard to. You know how can you possibly not? Uh, t- you're on the you're on the the American culture stream. It goes right past you. You know what I mean. You're seeing all. You're going to intake all of that culture, and uh, and that can't help but have an effect in some way. So it's 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 fascinating. But it but certainly like when I think about when I think about uh, the the sort of the dichotomy or the relationship between Canada and America, it's 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 
you know, jovial and, and playful in the sense that we fought on whenever there have been major world wars, we fought on the same side. And I think that the central difference between Korea and Japan is that they, they have not historically, um, you know, that, and in fact, Japan has like when, whenever you, I'm not sure how much time you spend in Korea, but if you, I, I used to go hiking a lot and pretty much every temple without exception you'd go up to the top and it would say you know this is a reconstruction of a temple that was originally built in the 13th century which was burned down by the japanese in the you know whatever century and then burned down again by the japanese in the 18th century and finally burned down for a third time in the 20th century you know and i think um yeah that that and that's a real reality right and so i think if you if you, uh, if I was, uh, if I had to walk down the street and there was a plaque outside of a church that said "originally burned down by the Americans," and you know what I mean, so, so yeah, so, sure. So I, it reminds me a little bit about the Hungarians. Hungarians have a lot of problems with many of their neighbors. They have, I think, have about eight neighbors in neighboring countries that touch with them, and at least half of them, if not uh, six of them, they really don't like and. It makes me also wonder about the hierarchy of who's better. Do they like the Chinese more or the Japanese more, or who do they hate more? That's a good question. I mean, my, or, or and then of course, then you have the North Koreans, which is a third. But you're talking about living next to this big stream of culture, like the American culture, when you're in Canada, and having this big stream. But they have these two massive streams. They have the Japanese one, they have the Chinese one, and then they have this kind of wacky little stream called North Korea. It's also sure. kind of a thorn on their side. So I don't know how they kind of look at these three powerful countries, influential countries that are sitting right at their borders, or not, you know, right next to them, let's just say, because obviously there's a sea that separates them. But uh, what, what would you say um, as far as how they, they put the hierarchy? We've concluded that they're not huge fans of the Japanese, but what about the Chinese and the North Koreans? Yeah, I mean, I th- well, for one, I can speak to the to the North Korea issue. I mean, I have I've been to the to the um, demilitarized zone, the DMZ, and and that's an intense place. Um, but I don't get the sense that the average citizen uh, has any sense of. I mean, I think for, for for the most part, I mean, and I can only I can only speak to this could be unique to the people that I knew and was friends with in Seoul. But I felt like most people felt bad for. For you know, the country was split in half, and there was a whole. Um, there was a half the nation was uh, accelerated into the light faster than any country in the world, and the other country was, you know, a, a basically a canvas was put over, and they were kept in the dark. Um, I think that uh, it's it's tense because um, you know it's it's. I, I think probably the North Korean regime is finding it harder and harder to keep everything quiet. Um, um, but it's an, I'm not sure if you've been to the DMZ before, but it's an interesting spot because you've got, you know, these buildings that are supposed to show the progress of North Korea. And, and, and a lot of them you can see across the border. If it's nighttime, the light starts at the top and gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer as it goes towards the bottom of the big building because there are no floors. Um, so it's supposed to be a show of wealth that doesn't exist. And, 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 and uh, it's fascinating. I, You're I, saying I no populated sense. floors. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, like literally. Otherwise, I was like, built. "Wow, there's no floors. Maybe it levitates." <laughs> Levitation. Yes, <laughs> they're truly advanced society. <laughs> yes, very advanced. Oh, no, like literally, yeah, they're they're building it's Cloud like, City. 
<laughs> building what amounts to a shell, and there's a big light up at the top, and it goes down. I think now more than ever, Koreans are comfortable um, because they're culture machines now. My my again another theory of mine, but I think that the U.S. Um, you know, part of the indelible mark they left on Korea was to, I think they, they worked with Korea to help them become a, a center of culture in the region because they, America understood better than anybody, the power of culture and exporting your culture. Um, and so I think literally the U.S. has sort of has groomed Korea to, to be the K-pop monster and the K-shows and all, all, all the Korean dramas and everything. Um, now it used to be that, that people were consuming content from Japan and China. And now Japan and China are consuming content from Korea. And, uh, and that, that's a big shift. Um, and, and, and I think that's, but I mean, as far as the relationship goes, I think North Korea, I think um, most Koreans still feel um, more just really sad for, for their former compatriots. Um, and the Chinese, I, I, I didn't really get to talk. I didn't really hear as much about the Chinese as I did the Japanese. And I think also you have to remember that the Japanese didn't just invade and and um, and and sort of burn everything to the ground, but they they were also uh, you know it could not have been worse in the way that everything happened. I mean, I think they were you know they were uh, besmirching uh, major landmarks. They also uh, probably one of the more horrific things that happened uh, during the conflicts between those two nations is the. Japanese had taken Korean women as what they were later known as comfort women. So they were taking women to bring along with the armed forces in war, Korean women. So that's something that uh, I, I never could find a, um, a person who could stomach that very easily in Korea. And I, I think rightfully so. It's, a, it's an awful thing to, to imagine. But, I, you know, as far as that's, that's, that's my general feeling with the nations, it, it, most of the... Most of the distaste was uh, was was towards the Japanese, and and there's still like some some meaningless islands that they sort of battle over um, here and there. So I think the tension's still there, but um, you know I don't, I don't I, I you know like everything I think the probably the hatred and the intensity was more was more prevalent um, you know around the times of the offenses. So I, I mean I, I I get I get the sense now that Koreans are are very um, are are focused on you know forging their own destiny and and their own identity and and having else everybody else in the region worry about them. Now, um, now when you look at your crystal ball, Chris, now tell me if you foresee war or union or something else. In other words, will the fate of the Korean Peninsula be a Germany 2.0? In other words, East and West Germany joined and became one powerful country. And maybe the same thing will happen when the proverbial DMZ goes away, just like the Berlin Wall went down. Or do you imagine that it will decline into a war of some sort, part uh, the Second Korean War, or or something else? Maybe a third option. My personal feeling, and then you know, this could uh, the problem with going on record and saying things is history can prove you to be wrong, but. Uh, my my personal. I, I just heard somebody say, whenever you make predictions, always do it at least forty years ahead of time because you'll probably be dead by then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in twenty fifty, no, um, <laughs> I, I I personally feel like um, I think reconciliation is going to be is going to be the step that happens. I think, um, but it's going to take a different leader at the helm in North Korea, and uh, that's that's really my my feeling. I I, I think that um 
Well, that dude, the dude is really young. I mean, that guy is going to be around if he doesn't step down voluntarily or get pushed out. I mean, the guy's going to be there for another 40 years at least. That's why I made the 40 year prediction. Um, no, but I, I think, I think I, yeah, I mean, that, and that's a real thing. Um, but I mean, I, I, you know, if you know a fair bit about North Korea, you'll know that uh, it's 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 being propped up in a lot of ways by other people who, other countries who might benefit from having that country to stir things up in the region. And I think, I think the the, the real problem is that um, North Korea is built on on the backs of misinformation, and misinformation on that scale is getting harder and harder to to uh successfully it's, it's being it's, it's becoming harder and harder to successfully keep your people blind um and so i don't know whether whether that would ever result in an uprising of sorts but i think i think eventually um eventually there's going to be an opportunity for reconciliation and i think both sides are going to be happy to come to that table you know again though it's it's hard to say because uh it i mean we're, it's a tense time in the world as well right now so who knows? I guess I think at heart, I'm an optimist. Um, and I believe, you know, that there's, uh, I believe that, that politics aside and governments aside and bravado aside, that uh, probably people on both sides would would rather be united. And, and I hope, I hope that really it's either Kim Jong-un, um, either he sort of comes to, I don't want to say comes to his senses, but I think he realizes that uh, it's a charade you can only keep up for so long, or you know he doubles and triples down, um, like we've seen other leaders do in the past. I mean, what's the old expression? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, you know. So I, at the same time, too, if I was a, why would the guy who runs this whole nation with an iron fist want to give up? I I don't know. Gorbachev but, uh, did. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Uh, so let's hope. So let's hope that that's the route. Um, but I would say that uh, my feeling now is that before war will, would would be reconciliation. Right. No, I agree with you. And I'll go down for the record. So we'll go down together in a flaming ship if there's a big World War Three that erupts from the Korean Peninsula. But I agree with you 100 percent. I think it's all this stuff is bravado, all this Donald Trump going against Kim Jong-un and the missiles and all that stuff. I just think it's a bunch of bullshit. It's just smoke and mirrors and nothing's going to happen in the end. Nobody really wants to fight for anything. And so it's all just going to fade away. And eventually, like you say, information gets out there and the North Koreans will eventually um, revolt against their regime. I just been utterly flabbergasted and completely wrong when I've predicted, when I thought back in the 1990s that Korea was going to be the last domino to fall that decade because all the other communist countries fell and I have cannot or had to transform radically like, Chinese officially is still communist, but they had to transform so much that it's almost unrecognizable. But I just would have... Ne- and, and even C- Cuba has also had to transform pretty substantially. But North Korea, as far as I can tell, hasn't changed all that much since the 1950s. And so I don't know. I just don't see it. Here's the thing that I've read a ton of books now you know, on of, of people who have escaped from the regime and are writing about it and... and and they're talking about it, the fact that they, there is information getting into North Korea. So I don't know when it will fall. Um, 2027, it, it, dude. Okay. Do you want to double on down on that? March 27th. 
There we go. Okay, March 27, 2027. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's it's what's going down, happen. dude. <laughs> and if it happens, if it happens, then then you owe me a pizza. The- yeah, well, or we'll go on Oprah together. Okay, there you go. <laughs> but, but I, you know, I know, and obviously I hope that's the the case. I think you're probably right. This is, it seems to me at least that uh, this is the last old fashioned uh, blindfold over your eyes dictatorship. Yeah, uh, you it know, really work, is. It is. Work and be, work and be quiet. Even Bhutan. Or, or or... I mean, all sorts of countries have just kind of opened up in some, one way or another. It's just really, Albania opened up. God, it's like everybody has opened up. It's like these guys are like the last remaining bastion. It's kind of like the Wakanda of the world. It's hidden. Yeah, the, on the wrong technology. side of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's also, it's, yeah, but it's, it, it's, it's fascinating because it's like people are enamored by... North Korea because of that, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, I mean, I, it's hard to imagine a more bizarre, uh, I don't know, I mean, just bizarre history or country or, or like, I, I remember being in the DMZ and, uh, the, the people in South Korea are like, don't make any sudden movements or whatever, just, you know, be calm. And, and you look across the divide and you look across on the other side and there are, you know, there are North Korean guards who are looking at you with binoculars and you're just thinking, you know, how surreal is this? It's just, uh, it's, it's just bizarre. At the same time, I would love to go to North Korea. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I think we're probably aligned on this. That it's, I think the people are, it, a lot of people just have been brainwashed, you know. And I don't think I don't hold anything against the North Korean people. I just think the, the regime itself. Um, you know, we we just hope it hope it collapses uh and but you know ideally not in spectacular fashion i mean ideally in a way that you know people aren't killed on mass scales and obviously um i i mean i i really having a decent understanding of both nations i i would love to see what a what a korea as one as one place would would look like how how that would function i think it would just be it'd be fascinating and hopefully that will occur as we suggested on 2027, uh, March 27, 2027. Yeah. And if that goes down, um, you and I are writing a book co-authoring <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> Called Eat This, Nostradamus. <laughs> um, so there you go. Um, now tell us, let's, let's, let's bring the, the listeners to a practical, useful tips now regarding how can they be more like travelingmitch.com. Yeah, in what sense? In the sense that somebody's listening to this and saying, you know what, I would love to do what you're doing, what Chris is doing, and and actually going out there and living abroad for six months, six years, something. What would you yeah. advise them to do? Yeah, so the so the first thing is 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 trying to disseminate and trying to break apart what are your marketable skills because it turns out that um, whether or not you're employed or not in, in your home nation, um, you know, for example, if you're fluent in English, I and mean, that's a tremendous advantage, one that you have to uh, recognize. It's it's, it's something you're um, it, like, you know, I, I had I had plenty of people who I taught with in South Korea who were there for a year or two, and uh, they're they had a bachelor's degree and they spoke fluent English, and that was enough to provide them with a with a career that they really loved. Uh, I think it's really easy if you stay put and if you, you know, you you can 
you can be in, a, in Toronto and it's just not the right job market and you think, well, I guess, you know, I guess I'll just be unemployed for a while here. Or you can be creative and think about not only how can you use your skills elsewhere, but, but you know, embolden your resume a little bit. So the first thing I would think about is what's, what skills do you have to, to bring to the table that you could bring somewhere else? I think it's a different thing um, traveling in a place and, and, and working in a place and being a part of the rhythm. And I would consider studying at the University of Oslo to be, to be also being part of the rhythm of a place. But I think when you, when you get up with the people and you go to work with the people and you come home with the people, you know, you learn, you feel like a part of something. Like I remember in Oslo when I would come home from classes in the afternoon, everybody on the subway would have their skis and they'd head out straight to cross country skiing. And I just felt like a part of that, you know, and before I knew it, I was cross country skiing afterwards and I was a part of everything. Um, Hold on. So I think Hold on one second, because I also I realize I may be giving the miss a, a a wrong message to some of the listeners here because a lot of people are hearing, oh, you've been to Istanbul, you've been to Oslo, you've been to Seoul. All these are enormous cities. Well, Oslo is not that big, but anyway, they're big cities, capitals, and yet we haven't talked about a time when you did something completely different, which is your little village in Nicaragua. So tell us, as you're answering this question of like, how can we be more like you, Chris, then tell us a little bit more about your experience in Nicaragua. Yeah. I mean, I think it still stems from the same idea, which is that you got to think about what you can offer and, and then ultimately where you can offer that best. And so that opportunity in Nicaragua actually came up um, to to go and teach in a small village called Pearl Lagoon. Pearl Lagoon is uh, four had four thousand people at the time, uh, probably still does, and uh, it was a Creole community in the autonomous region of Nicaragua. And um, I didn't even know I, they have yeah. an autonomous region. What is that all about? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, they do have an autonomous region because it's, uh, it's like from the Sandinistas or something. It's it's probably. Um, I think it's a primarily Creole culture, um, and I, I think it was. It, I mean, it's it might be a drastic oversimplification, but as far as I understood, uh, I mean, at least possibly theoretically, during the slave trade in, um, you know, quite some time ago, there were apparent apparently there's a a number of shipwrecks that happened there, and survivors might have come onto the shore to start a new community there. Whether or not that's true, I'm not totally sure, but I do know that there's an enormous portion of Nicaragua, the autonomous region where, where, near where the Corn Islands are, which is uh, primarily Creole and not Spanish speaking. Um, so I didn't know any of that history, and uh, and so my lens there was. Not, you know, sure, speak, teaching English in Seoul was great, but I also, in that situation, was was curious about impact. You know, what sort of impact can I make? I think you want to feel, like, I I can't possibly communicate to you what sort of joy I got. Everybody in the town called me prof. Uh, I just walked around. Everyone said, hey, prof, prof, how's it going? Um Actually, it was the it was a whole like there was all kinds of awesome um, Creole slang that I picked up. So you know, everyone would be like, "Hey, hey prof," and they'd say, "How, how?" So like, "How are you doing?" And I and then the correct response was, "Right here, right here." So <laughs> I would walk around, everyone would be like, "Prof, prof, how, how?" And I'd be like, "Right here, right here," um, and I loved that, you know. And so I think. I think, you know, from a practical lens, when I'm talking about all the experiences, for me, it's a mixture of, okay, what places do I want to explore? What marketable skills do I have? And where can I make a legitimate impact? And I think 
those three things can guide you into into new opportunities. And then the other thing too is just realizing that um, you know we often think and overthink and you know whatever all these decisions, but ultimately you just got to go. Um, and I know that sounds cliche, but I I loved it because when I first moved to Oslo, I had a whole bunch of friends who were like, why why are you going to Oslo? Like why Oslo, Norway? I don't understand. And I'd be like, because you have to ask that question. You know, that's why. That's why because you have to ask that question and be stunned a little bit. And I think that's. That's what it's all about, right? Um, for for a lot of journeys, and um, I also, you know, I'm also a firm believer in in the fact that, like, really, there there aren't any bad decisions. They're just decisions you you can learn a little bit more from than others. Um, and so, I never really was. I never really thought to myself, oh well, what if I don't like Istanbul? I just figured I'd find my Istanbul that I did like. Um, and and I think uh, that probably the best part about living abroad, at least for me, was that I felt like. I was always furthering my mission there. You know, I was always understanding more about a place, even if it was justifying going out at night and going to a live band and having some beer or whatever at that time on a school night. You know, I think ultimately I kind of felt like I was uh, taking notes um, and trying to learn more every single day. And that's that's part of the beauty of traveling is I think if you, you know, done right, you can you come home with a tremendous vault of knowledge, but you didn't necessarily remember reading all the books, you know. Right. And by the way, for those listening, if they want to access your vault of knowledge, go to travelingmitch.com. And by the way, your last name is Mitchell. So why mm-hmm. tra- how, do people, your name is Chris or Christopher. Why does no. people, do people, your friends call you Mitch? Yeah. So at the time uh, that I started the site back in 2011, I had basically the high school that I went to had, uh, you know, I think it had a lot of Chris's. And so it was just easier for everyone to call me Mitchell and um, you know, you know, you have good friends over the years and eventually Mitchell became Mitch and Mitchie and all kinds of other stuff. And, uh, you know, one night I was, uh, I'd had a beverage or two in Oslo and, um, traveling Chris sounded a little too carnival-esque, uh, you know, like a little like traveling Chris. So, uh, so traveling Mitch it was. And I think, you know, the other thing too is, and I'm not sure. I, I think there's a lot of people now who get into travel blogging with a real, with a real business mindset around it. Like for me at that time when I started this website, I was just trying to make sure that I didn't have to, I could just send all my family to one place. I didn't have to tell the same story and hop on 15 calls, right. you know? Um, right. and, it, and it helped that I had a passion for writing and eventually it became this, but I never, like I never sat down and thought what brand is going to be catchy, yeah, <laughs> you right. know? Uh, so here we are. I mean, I'll take, it's kind of like one of those things where it, it works. Um, how long did you stay in, sorry, I'm still fascinated about your Nicaragua experience. How long did you stay there? Uh, I guess in total it would have been a couple months. Good. Okay. Um, so nothing, nothing too extreme. But mm. I got pretty sick right when I got there, so it took me a little bit of time to get on my feet and get teaching. They have a lot of become... they have a lot of mosquitoes down by that coast there. Yeah, and also you know I I was um, I just I was I was staying with a family this wonderful woman named Miss Ingrid who was just great and welcomed me in like family and I ended up drinking a little bit of the water. Uh, like they just the same water they were drinking, but I kind of asked around and figured out what I could and should be doing. And it was this gray area that they were, they they had been filtering it, but I guess it just wasn't filtered enough for, I don't know, for my weak immune system. And uh, I ended up getting really sick for three or four days. So like, yeah, and then and the, it was, you know, it was pretty frightening because I, at that point, because the nearest hospital was a 45 minute boat right away. Um, but uh, I was lucky that Miss Ingrid, like she took me in like a, like a son and she, 
would come in and pat my forehead with a paper towel and she just nursed me back to health with with coconut water um but you know it was brutal because it was like it was really hot and my room you know it was it was a little room on a property that was kind of indoor outdoor e um you know like i i remember there's this one moment where i'm just lying there like totally sick i'm like i really hope i get through this and there's like a little gecko just staring back at me in the wall and i'm like if i wasn't so sick right now this would be hilarious <laughs> that's funny but uh yeah i mean what's what's next for you in this decade 2020s it's a good question um you know i'm i'm kind of happily based in toronto right now but but uh based is sort of a you'll you'll know i mean i i know just from following your stuff and the way you talk about travel it's it's sort of only a matter of time right before your next journey you just can't stay put after a period of time um i i really don't know i was in new york last week um i'm do, i'm traveling a lot around my own province right now and my own country and focusing on the canadian stories i just started another website called ultimateontario.com with another ontario based travel writer can you so repeat that please Oh sure, ultimateontario.com. dot mm-hmm. um, and we're uh, we're just focused on telling. The, you're some focused of the on British Columbia, yeah, for, <laughs> only BC for now. Um, uh, but you know, I think the thing was that when I came back to Toronto and Ontario, I kind of had this like chip on my shoulder, like, well, it's not Istanbul, it's not like you know Antalya and Izmir and all these places. And then I realized that turns out. Uh, probably the great equalizer is that everybody has their stories, you know, and sometimes they're like, you know, just ridiculously obscure, like the first bowling alley in Canada or whatever. And you're like, what? Or like, you know, the, the only place that ever har- you know, harvested corn in winter. Like, and you're like, I don't even know what is going on, but like, let's go check it out. Um, and actually something I'm planning on doing this summer, uh, this summer with, uh, with Bree, my wife is there's a whole bunch of, you know, of course, Canada was uh, heavily immigrated. And so there's all these little towns like Paris and Berlin and all these places in Ontario. Um, and so we're going to do a Euro trip. It's a five hours. And I think you hit like seven European capitals, but it's all in Ontario. It's like Paris, Ontario, Berlin, Ontario, uh, London, Ontario. It's, it's going to be fun. But I think, um, I mean, yeah, anyways, I, I, I the, the the moral of that is I'm I'm right now just kind of enjoying focusing on I spent most of the last decade uh, ignoring my homeland, and and now I'm kind of refocused on it a little bit and seeing where that takes me. Um, but at the same time, too, I'd be shocked if I wasn't. Uh, I'm going to be in Mexico in March and and a few other spots. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm excited about the next place I'm going, but I'm not as uh, I'm not as intense about making sure that I have ten plans step ten step uh, ten steps ahead. If you know what I mean. Yeah, completely. And what is your, any final words of wisdom for people? Well, I guess just the main thing for me is that um, something I talked a little bit before is just that I, when I was growing up um, and you know do, doing some of these earlier experiences like living in Oslo, I just I just sort of had this feeling like. Okay, so you know, travel is something you do while you have a little bit of extra money, while you have a little bit of extra time, and then you, then you give all that up and you live the rest of your, you know, boring life, and you just sort of you 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 try to hold on to those memories that you had from the beginning to so justify how boring things got and you know how tired you are and all this kind of stuff, and then you know slowly began to realize that that travel can be an enormous part of your life, and and for me. Um, I'm, you know, enormously blessed to be writing about travel, talking about travel, and 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 a whole lot more now. And so I think, I think the, the the big thing for people to just think about is not not necessarily to think about 
you know, their life and then being on vacation, but understanding that there, there are a lot of brilliant ways that you can integrate and weave travel into your life uh, in meaningful ways that I think at the end of the day, you can figure out that you lived a much richer life because of that. Well said, well said. Well, Chris, or Traveling Mitch, however you like to be called, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to sharing with the Wanderlearn listeners about your, your stories and your adventures all over the world. And I hope you encourage people to travel profoundly, deeply, and, and spend as much time as they can to kind of really get to know a region and work there, integrate. And there are so many benefits that come from that. And it's a pity that we don't live thousands of years, but uh, I'm glad you've, you've, you've been able to do this for several years. And that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one last reason to remember FTAPON. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash FTAPON. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now for five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the WanderLearn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it somewhere. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn. <laughs>